Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make sure you're aware of a few things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks at Hope Church LV, and also be sure to check out our website at hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're going as a church. Once again, thank you so much for checking out this sermon at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. The longest war in human history lasted 781 years. From the year 711 to the year 1492, the Iberian religious war took place in what is modern-day Spain and Portugal. And this war for the control of a landmass in Western Europe spanned centuries, generations, and involved an overwhelming number of people. Now just so we can get our head around the duration of that war, if a war of that length were to start today, it would carry on until the year 2,800 before its completion. That's overwhelming to think about. A battle that would last over 700 years. As overwhelming as it is to consider a war of that length and magnitude, the Bible talks about another battle. And it is a battle that has been taking place since our enemy, the devil, was cast out of heaven. This battle that I'm referring to impacts every nation on the planet and involves all 7.7 billion people alive today. When speaking of this spiritual battle, an author by the name of Chip Ingram said this, We are involved in an invisible war, a cosmic conflict that has eternal implications. It is real, it is serious, and it is ultimate in its consequences. We are soldiers in the battle that matters most. As a church family, we are currently in a series entitled Battle Lines, Standing Firm in a Fallen World. And last Sunday, in part one of this series, we began to study a section in the book of Ephesians where the author, the Apostle Paul, really specifies three things that he wants us to know in the midst of this battle. Three themes that run throughout the passage of Scripture that we're studying within this series. And I want to remind you very quickly about what those are. The first theme that we see in this section of the book of Ephesians is this. Paul wants you to know, he wants me to know, that we have an enemy. He wants us to know that we have an enemy. Last Sunday, we looked at five things that we know about our enemy, the devil. 
And we discovered that every New Testament author, as well as Jesus Christ himself, when he was on the earth, made reference to the enemy. So what that means is, for us to say that we believe the Bible is to acknowledge the reality that we have an enemy and he is evil. The second theme in this section of Ephesians that we're going to talk more about today is Paul wants us to know how our enemy works. And then finally, he wants us to know that we can experience victory in the midst of this battle. So if you have a copy of the Bible today, would you look with me in Ephesians chapter 6? And I want to read verses 10 through 13 as our text for this morning. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, I want to invite you to look up on the screen in just a moment and you can follow along with us as we read together. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And finally, verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand A very weighty, interesting passage of Scripture in the book of Ephesians. The question that we looked at last Sunday was this question. Who is our enemy? And if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go online, go on our app and watch the first part of this series because it's really foundational for what we're going to talk about today. What I want to do during our time together to really unpack the passage that we just read is I want to ask and answer two other very significant questions. And here's our first question for today. How does my enemy work? It's one thing for us to acknowledge that we have an enemy, but kind of the next step in the conversation is this question. If I have an enemy, how does my enemy work? In verse 11 of our passage for today, there's a very important word. Verse 11 says this, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This word scheme means method. It's defined as a way of doing something systematically. It means to follow an orderly procedure in the handling of a subject. It could also be called a strategy. And it's important for us as we engage in this spiritual battle that we have an awareness about the strategy of our enemy. And I want to share with you really two general parts of the enemy's strategy to expose them today so that we can better stand firm in the midst of the battle. Here's the first general part of the enemy's strategy of attack. Our enemy learns our weaknesses through observation. This is a part of his plan. This is a part of his scheme, his method, his strategy. 
He learns our weaknesses through observation. In this series, we've already clarified that Satan is a created being and he is not equal to God. What is taking place between God and Satan is not a tug of war with one of them pulling on the side of good and the other pulling on the side of evil. God is more powerful and God is more glorious than the enemy and there is no comparison. You see, the enemy does not know everything and the enemy cannot be everywhere. He is not aware of everything that's going on and he can only be in one place at one time. However, through his demonic forces that we just saw referenced in this passage, he's able to observe our lives. Here's what that means. The enemy has a strategy of attack for you based on observing your life. The enemy, through his demonic forces, he is observing your life. They are observing your life, and they are building a plan of attack. Have you ever wondered why the enemy comes against you in your weakest areas? Those areas have been determined by observing your life. The best way I know to illustrate this is to share with you one of my most vivid memories from playing football in high school. So when I think about playing football in high school, one of the things that always comes to my mind first are the halftime speeches. So I played offense when I was in high school playing football. And because of that, our, the person calling the plays, the offensive plays on our team, was not on the sideline with me during the first half. He was actually way above the field in a press box so he could see the entire field as he called the plays for that game. So during the first half, I never had any interaction with him. Now, if you're here today and you don't know what a half of football is, or you don't know what a press box is, there'll be pastors up front afterwards, and we would love to pray for you. So during the first half of the game, I never interacted with the coach who was calling the plays. But at halftime... During the speech, we would have a conversation. And here's normally how the conversation went. Travis, I've watched their players for an entire half. And here is what I have learned about their weaknesses. And then, as a team, we would make adjustments accordingly in order to exploit the weaknesses of the other team. That's exactly the tactic of the enemy. He is watching your life through demonic forces. And he is making conclusions based on observing your life. A.T. Robertson said this, He is a crafty foe and knows the weak spots in the Christian's armor. Now, at least for me, in hearing something like that or reading that statement, there's a feeling inside of me that is very unsettled. I mean, these are, these are unique things we're talking about today. But I want to share with you the greatest thing that you can do to mess up 
the strategy of the enemy. We've already said that the enemy has a plan of attack for your life. He's been watching your life. He's been observing your life and developing a strategy to attack you. So I want to share with you the greatest thing you can do to mess up and disrupt the strategy of the enemy. This is one of those things you want to write down. Live a life of repentance. The greatest thing that we can do to mess up the strategy of the enemy that has been derived by observing our lives is to live a life of repentance. The word repent in the Bible indicates a change in one's purpose. Specifically, it means to turn away from my way in order to follow Jesus. Now, I think you would agree that if living a life of repentance is the greatest thing we can do to disrupt the strategy of the enemy, it's very significant that you and I understand what repentance looks like. Well, first and foremost, repentance is central when we embrace the gospel. As people who do not have a relationship with God, the Bible tells us if we come to God in repentance for our sins and we place our faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and we begin following him, we are then given a love relationship with God that will last for eternity. But repentance does not stop there. Repentance is also significant in the life of a believer. Because we are still being conformed to the image of Jesus, we still mess up and we still make mistakes. And where nothing can take away our eternal love relationship with God, here's what sin disrupts. It disrupts our fellowship with God. So when we make mistakes, we must come to God in confession and repentance in order to restore an intimate, close fellowship with Him. So for the believer, repentance is ongoing. Clyde Cranford wrote this in his book, Because We Love Him. Repentance that is not ongoing is not genuine. Faith that does not involve surrender is not adequate. A life in which holiness does not develop is not Christian. Now, over the course of my life, and this is not pastorally speaking, this is true, I've listened to literally thousands of sermons. And every time that I've heard a sermon taught specifically on the subject of repentance, here's normally what would happen. The person who is speaking would walk in a certain way indicating a path or a lifestyle of sin. And that person would teach, when we choose to repent, that does not mean that we just stop going this direction. To repent means to stop and completely turn around and go in the opposite direction Walking away from what I desire toward what God desires. And that is absolutely true. Repentance involves a turning to go in the other direction. There's a recognition and there's a turning that is involved in repentance. But for me, even though I've always understood what that action represented, here's where I've struggled. I've struggled with what the attitude of that looks like. I've struggled what that look, with what that looks like from a heart 
standpoint. And so, in my immaturity as a believer, here's what that would look like. I would do something, say something, make a decision that I knew was sinful. And I would feel guilty for it. And in a very um, just quick manner, I would say, my bad, God. I'm going to try harder next time. And I would just go back into the flow of life. That's not what a heart of repentance looks like. An ambiguous, bad feeling that you are a lousy person is not the same as conviction of sin. And feeling terrible is not the same as repentance. If repentance is going to be real, if it's going to be genuine, the posture of the heart has to be in the right place. When I think about confession and repentance, I think about one verse of Scripture, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. This is so powerful. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 does not represent a check mark. It does not represent, my bad God, I'll try harder. Here's what 1 John 1.9 represents. A heart change. It's not that I'm just going to stop doing this certain action and have no moment where I really wrestle with what's going on inside of me and there actually being a change of heart. When repentance is real, When I say something or do something or I act in a certain way and I know immediately that it is sin. I confess that sin and I have to approach the Lord. And when I approach the Lord, my conversation with him is personal, it's specific, and it's hopeful. So in one sense, for some of us, for me, for example, there are moments when I think 1 John 1.9 is a check mark. And I'm, my bad God, I'll try harder. But let me tell you what I think it's supposed to look like. When we make a decision or we make a mistake that that we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we've messed up, we're to approach our Father. And here's what it looks like for me. Lord, I know what just happened more than anything else was a sin against you. You're my father, and my bad decision, my sin has, has interfered with my fellowship with you. And God, I know I, I, need to, I want to make that right. It's personal, but it's also specific. Lord, I know I struggle with anger. And the, the, the comment I made earlier today, that was wrong. And God, I need your grace in the midst of the anger that boils inside of me. I need your life in me to to work. I'm specific. Thirdly, I'm hopeful. God, I know you're not done with me yet. I know you are working and perfecting and conforming my life. And so, Lord, as as I continue to pursue you, Lord, would you keep me close and would you keep me clean? God, keep me sensitive to the sin that exists and the decisions that I make. So, God, I can walk in close fellowship with you. That's repentance. That's what it looks like. Not just to have a check mark, but to have a heart change. And listen, 
The enemy doesn't know what to do with that. His observations are out the window because you're running a play he never anticipated. If you're a parent, you can totally relate with this. When your child does something they should not have done, we've all gotten the response of, sorry. But hopefully, hopefully you've also seen the response of, Daddy, I messed up. And I'm sorry. And I want to see things change as I move forward. There's a difference. This moment of repentance is not just a check mark that you move through. It's not just a superficial moment. It is a, it is a pausing to acknowledge you have walked outside of the ways of God and, a, and an expression of your desire to follow Him closer than you ever have before. The greatest thing we can do to mess up the strategy of the enemy is live a life of repentance. Here's my question for you. How do you view repentance? Is it a, I'm going to throw up a prayer and hope God hears it? I'm just going to keep moving as a check mark, or when you, when you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit that something's happened that you know needs to change, you're approaching God. It doesn't have to be a long conversation, but it has to be real. It has to be personal. It has to be specific, and it has to be hopeful because He's not done with you yet. It's the greatest thing that we can do to disrupt the strategy of the enemy. Here's a, here's a second part of the enemy's strategy. Not only observation, but our enemy exploits our weaknesses through deception. The Gospel of John chapter 8 says this. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. Listen, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. This verse says that the enemy is a liar. It means one who is characterized by that which deviates from or perverts the truth. Everything that comes out of the enemy's mouth is a lie. And everything that he is about deviates from or perverts the truth. So here are a couple of ways that his lies are going to come at us. The lies of our enemy come in the form of distortion, doubt, and distraction. He's a liar. And when he lies to us, it's going to come in the form of distortion, doubt, and distraction. First of all, distortion. He twists the truth. You'll hear, doesn't God want you to be happy? Or, I know the Bible says, but. All the while, the truth is that God wants an abundant life for us. But that abundant life can only be found in His design for life. But the enemy's plan is to somehow twist or distort the truth. Secondly, doubt. He questions 
the truth. You'll hear, how can God love you when you fail him so often? How can you choose to trust God with all that is happening in your life? And in those moments, we must have a foundation on the word of God to stand upon. And in those moments, we must acknowledge the lie for what it is, acknowledge the truth for what it says, and by faith, believe the truth of God. Because the enemy's lies are going to come to us in the form of doubt. Thirdly, distraction. He leads you away from the truth. You'll hear, you don't really need time alone with God today. Maybe spend some time on social media or spend some time working or spend some time on the internet. When the reality is, apart from God, we can do nothing. But through Him, we can do all things. So we must pursue Him daily. But the enemy's going to lie. And he's going to try to distract you from a life that is rooted and pursuing the truth of God. Charles Stanley made this statement. Much of the time, the devil ensnares us one small lie at a time. If he told us a whopping lie we'd recognize him for the liar he is. He chooses to tell us small lies that are just one degree away from the truth. So that's how our enemy works. Observation, deception. And to go against those strategies, we must live a life of repentance because the enemy doesn't know what to do when that happens. And we must have a life that is grounded in the truth. So when the lies of the enemy come to us, we can see the lie, we can know the truth, and by faith we can believe the truth. That's how the enemy works. Here's a second question for us today. How do I stand firm against the attacks of my enemy? If last week we looked at who he is, We just spent some time talking about his plan, his method, his strategy. Here's the next natural question. How do I stand firm against the attacks of my enemy? And the answer is really found in the two commands that Paul gives in these verses. In verse 10, he says this, be strong in the Lord. Here's what we need to know. I need strength that is only found in the Lord. If we're going to stand firm against the attacks of the enemy, the strategies of the enemy, we need strength that is only found in the Lord. You could say it this way. My strength is never enough, but his strength is always enough. Tony Marita in his commentary on this passage said this, Our strength is not in our resources and ability. In how long we've been Christians in how much we know the Bible, or in how long we have been in ministry. Our strength is in our union with Jesus Christ and His mighty power. We need strength that can only come from the Lord. But here's the mistake that I've made over and over, and maybe you've done the same. My natural tendency is to seek spiritual strength in the wrong way. For example... I focus on not doing something rather than allowing Christ to live through me. I focus on commitments, 
willpower, determination, accountability, Bible knowledge, time as a Christian. But those things will not produce the spiritual strength that I need to stand firm against the enemy. I love 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. It says this, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let me ask you something. Who's getting all the credit in that verse? Him. Not us. The encouraging part of this verse is not who we are. The encouraging part of this verse is who he is in us. Because in us, he's strong enough to withstand the attacks of the enemy. The second command that we find in these verses is this. Put on the full armor of God. Here's what that tells us. I need protection that only comes from the Lord. I need strength that's only found in him. And I need protection that can only come from him. This passage is going to go on to talk about truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. We see both in verse 11 and 13 this command towards the armor of God. You see, putting on the armor precedes us being able to stand firm. And so over the next two weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk specifically about the armor of God and what it means for us to put on this armor that we may stand firm in the midst of the battle. So, so don't miss the next two weeks as we talk specifically about that. In closing, I want to share something with you that I noticed in this passage that I'd never noticed before. This week, as I was preparing to teach, I noticed the progression within the book of Ephesians and where this emphasis on this spiritual battle is found. Now, I'm going to overly simplify this, but I think it'll make sense. In chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, we see all that Jesus has accomplished and who we are in him. In chapter 2, we see the eternal transformation that is possible by God's amazing grace. In chapter 3, we see that we've been united as a family for a mission. In chapter 4, we see the way that we're to walk as accepted, loved children of God. Chapter 5, we see the standard for relationships as a spirit-filled people. And only then in Ephesians 6 does Paul tell us that this amazing life of power and grace will be lived out in a hostile environment. Now think about this. The order of this book is very reassuring. He starts with victory and ends with warfare, not vice versa. So that should encourage us today to realize the victory has been won. He has shared with us throughout this book of the glories and the goodness and the greatness that exists in a relationship with God. And now he's telling us at the end of the book, this life on earth is going to be lived out in a hostile environment. So I'll leave you with the truth 
that we looked at last week that I think summarizes this very well. As followers of Jesus, we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. We are, we are in a battle, but we're not fighting to win. We are fighting to enforce the victory that Jesus Christ has already secured. Amen? Amen. I want to invite you to bow your head this morning. We're going to transition now to some time to respond. I believe every Sunday as we open up the word of God, that God speaks to us. So we want to take a few moments now and just really ask God, Lord, how, how are you speaking to me today? You may be here today and, and you know that you've never entered into a love relationship with God. That's crystal clear for you. There's never been a moment when you confessed your sin before him and you put your faith in his finished work and his life. And today's the day that you're being drawn to do that. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of response and we're going to have some pastors here um, along the stage and we would love today to show you from the Bible how you can be born again into a love relationship with God and be given eternal life. But for others of us today, if you're a follower of Jesus, how's God speaking to you? Are you in a place where the attacks of the enemy are just bombarding you and you don't know what to do? Maybe you realize you've not been living a life of repentance. And the enemy has been exploiting your weaknesses and you've not been walking in the victory that is yours in Christ. And today you just need to get that right. Maybe there's some, some conversation you need to have with the Lord that is personal, specific, and hopeful. Maybe in some form there's, there's been deception in your life and you've believed a lie. And today you see that lie in light of the truth of God. And you need to choose today to believe the truth. Have you been trying to fight the battle in your own strength? And today there needs to be a moment of dependence on the Lord to fight for you. Maybe there's something else in your life that's physical or financial or job-related, relationship-related, and today you just need somebody to pray for you. When we stand in just a moment, we're going to have the pastors here. You may want to come forward to just these steps on the stage and just make this an altar to just be alone with God. What we're about to do today is not, it's not a formality. We really believe God is speaking today, and we want to create some margin for you to listen to his voice, respond to what he's saying, and walk in the victory that is ours in Jesus. So Lord, we continue to seek you. Lord, thank you that we can talk about these things today. 
Lord, I've just been burdened all week for so many people whose lives are just wrecked. Lord, I pray that you would would draw us to yourself. You would show us the clear path of victory. Lord, you would show us how to live a life of repentance, how to stand upon the truth, how to be strong in your strength, how to put on your armor. We know the battle's real. We know the victory is yours. And God, we desire to walk in that victory. Thank you, Lord, that you are our firm foundation. You are our cornerstone. We worship you today, God. Speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.